This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Olivier Leonetti, CFO of Zebra Technologies, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leaders podcast. Thought Leader listeners, Beth Jensen promises to enter the mentoring round with us after these words from our sponsor. One place where we've been doing this for a couple of years is in cotton, where we actually put our molecular tag on the cotton at the gin. It's sprayed on there and then it's tested throughout the supply chain so that you know that that shirt you're wearing that has a claim of 100% Pima cotton actually is pure Pima. So it's not really just about counterfeiting. There's also all these other things, the circular economy and wanting to know, especially I think the millennial age really wants to know where their products are coming from and where they ethically sourced or be able to trace them back to the farm they were grown on or produced from. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to Beth Jansen, CFO of Applied DNA Sciences. Our interview with Beth begins after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking with Beth Jansen, CFO of Applied DNA Sciences. Beth, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. As always, we like to begin by asking our guests to look back for us. And if you wouldn't mind, Beth, share with us a few of the experiences you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role. Sure. So I started my career in public accounting right out of college, as, and I went from staff through senior manager there. So some experience I gained there has been very helpful now being in a CFO role. One thing that does stick out in my head is while I was in public accounting, I was working on a client that was in the process of becoming public. So they required two years of audits, both financial and 404, the internal control audits. We were under a tight deadline and include subsidiaries in four different countries with eight different audit teams globally. And I was in charge of kind of managing that whole task and keeping everyone in line and combining all the financial statements and the audits together to meet the SEC deadlines. So that was one thing that really just helped me with my management skills and just understanding problems and issues in different areas of the world and 
the country and kind of combining it all together and working with the partner to get the engagement done. Now, when you joined Applied DNA, you were originally the controller. Is that correct? That is correct. I started here. It'll be five years ago in May. I was a controller for just under two years when the CFO resigned to take another position outside of public companies. And I've been the CFO now for three years. Take us back when you first stepped into the CFO office. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. So when I started here, as we said, I was a controller and we actually had a CFO leave within, I believe it was five weeks of me starting. Um, and then the new CFO came in and she was a phenomenal mentor to me. Um, probably one of the best people I've ever worked with and just really helped me build confidence and leadership and all those quali- the intangible qualities, I guess I'd say, of becoming a CFO. I had the finance background and the technical ability but she gave me those intangibles and really helped mold me and mentor me to be able to take over her office. And, you know, is it, is it the lead by example or what was the, if you had to characterize her, her style? Uh, I think that's a good way. She was the lead by example and also just was very good at empowering people and making you feel confident and giving you the ability and the, I guess, room to be able to run and do things on your own, but also know that you had her to come back to. So she was very much a believer in empowering and letting the people who worked for her take on more responsibility and also then giving you the credit for doing it. Uh, is there a reason you landed in biosciences or would you tell us, you know what, it could have easily have been a, a software technology company. It could easily have been oil and energy. It actually was, I guess, through luck. <laughs> so I had a, I was happy at my current position, but had some uh, headhunter contact me through LinkedIn and told me they had this small startup public company out east on Long Island, which was the town over from where I lived, that was looking for a controller position. And I was like, this sounds way too good to be true, <laughs> coming from public accounting where I was traveling a lot of the year. So I did some research on the company, and the technology just seemed really interesting as well, and something I never had been exposed to before, because it's such a distinct, unique technology that I decided to take the interview, and then here I am almost five years later. When you, again, uh, stepped into the CFO role, was there something you had in mind in terms of the type of uh, CFO you wanted to become or uh, how you wanted to take on the the role? Sure. I think really one of the keys I like, which is a little bit like the predecessor CFO as well, is I just really wanted like an open door policy and a team to set up my department, even the company as just a team that everyone could work together and really make finance a resource for the other departments and for the company. Because we still are, we have this disruptive technology, and it's so new to different industries and verticals that we're always doing different contracts and different ways to apply it and things like that, that just even offering the insight that finance can can into how do you cost products and how do you structure agreements so that the revenue makes sense for both parties, and just really take finance as not just the ones who are monitoring the money and doing the financial reporting requirements, but also make us a resource for the company. So tell us about Applied DNA Sciences today and what exactly are its offerings? So I think really what distinguishes us or what we're focusing on right now is securing supply chains and big commercial ecosystems and almost a way to train, change the world and how the world trades by stopping cheating, for example, or 
um, fraud and things like that within supply chains. So one place where we've been doing this for a couple of years is in cotton, where we actually put our molecular tag on the cotton at the gin. It's sprayed on there, and then it's tested throughout the supply chain so that you know that that shirt you're wearing that has a claim of 100% Pima cotton actually is pure Pima. And being able to do that in cotton, we also now are trying to lay that groundwork and signing agreements to do that in the pharma industry and help protect some of the counterfeiting and things that are going on there. So the market opportunity is really uh, protection against counterfeiting. Counterfeiting, but then it also goes into, there's so many things people want to know and claims that companies and products make today, like ethical sourcing, sustainability, fair trade, whether something's organic or not organic. So it's not really just about counterfeiting. There's also all these other things, the circular economy and wanting to know, especially I think the millennial age really wants to know where their products are coming from and where they ethically sourced or be able to trace them back to the farm they were grown on or produced from. So I, I was just playing back in my head a little bit of what you just shared there, but it sounds like a very interesting technology, but let me understand. So applied DNA is responsible for creating uh, the spray uh, that's put on the cotton plant, and then does it also uh, track uh, the supply chain um, th- via the spray? It's both. It's a combination of both. So it's a molecular, a unique molecular tag. So each tag's unique, meaning that your tag would be different than mine. So I would be able to know, and we can authenticate through the supply chain, was my molecular tag used or your molecular tag used? So basically what happens is the molecular tag goes in some sort of a carrier. For cotton, it happens to be water because the cotton goes through the ginning process. It's rehydrated with water at a point, and that's when our DNA is sprayed onto the cotton, and then the molecular tag binds to the cotton, and we're able to authenticate it throughout the supply chain. Now, is this a, sort of a one-of-a-kind one of offering? I suspect not, and, and I suspect there are uh, various different applications that take this approach? There's definitely different applications for it. We also have a vertical where we do it on aftermarket projects like microchips for the military and the government or a certain consumer asset marking that happens to be more popular in Europe than here. But what seems to have really taken off and gotten traction is the protection of supply chains, meaning your cotton, and then you can duplicate what we've done in cotton and tweak it slightly to do it for synthetics or other textiles and also for pharma and anything that's really has a supply chain with multiple different nodes. How do you measure this opportunity? Is it how, uh, how large an opportunity is it? Do you put a number on it today? It's, I mean, hard to put a number on, but any really one of these verticals could definitely bring us to profitability or, you know, drastically increase our market cap and share. It's a matter of getting traction and then getting the pilots and feasibility studies turned over to commercialization. But the possibilities are endless. I mean, really what we'll do is that we'll look at how big potential markets are and then come up with, well, if a certain percentage of the market was to adopt it for X percentage of their products, how material could it be to us? And the numbers are astounding. So what what are the numbers uh, that you're paying close attention to at this stage in this company's maturity? What's important to you? Right. So right now, as I mentioned, we're still in the, we're still cash flow negative, unfortunately. 
and trying to build up our business and convert over essentially to commercialization because everything we do, we have to do a feasibility study first, meaning how do I take our molecular tags and apply it to cotton versus pharma versus synthetics or whatever it might be. So really mainly what I will look at is our cash flow and cash flow projections to see where our cash is at, um, our cash balances, our expenses, and then also I look at a revenue tracker which tracks our leads, open purchase orders, where we are forecasting our revenue to be quarterly. We actually circulate that. The finance department circulates that report weekly to myself and the other officers of the company. We also track our feasibility studies to see when we think they'll convert over to commercial. But mainly what I'm focusing on, I'd say, is revenue and cash flow. Now, I know you weren't there when the company uh, first went public, but um, can you share with us uh, what was the reasoning at that place in time that it decided to go public? The company went public a long time ago. It actually was in, I believe, 2002 under Nevada through a reverse acquisition. And then the CFO came on around 12 years ago. I'm sorry, the CEO came on around 12 years ago, and that's when the company really started to take its form. Would you prefer this to be a private company today? I mean, what uh, is it? Is it a burden that it it went public as early as it did? I think the initial when it initially went public, yes, and I think that's hard for a lot of companies, even ones I'd seen when I was in public accounting, that maybe they were public too soon. Um, there are definitely benefits of being public and the access to capital and things like that, but then there's also a lot of financial reporting requirements and focus on IR and efforts of those things that take up money and time and resources that maybe it would have been better if they had waited a little while, but we are where we are right now. I always uh, like to comment that in the biosciences space, I believe finance leaders face uh, sort of a double uh, challenge. One is, of course, they have to explain the financial picture um, with great detail, but they also then have to sort of explain the market opportunity or the vision for the offering uh, of, of a rather complex offering such as this one. Do you do you feel that way? It is, right, but that's, I think, what makes it challenging is it's not challenging. It's so exciting because it's a disruptive technology, but it also takes a while to get even your potential customers to understand the benefit, not the benefit, understand what it is first and then understand the benefit of how it could apply to them. Sometimes when you meet your finance leader peers at a networking event and you begin to try to explain <laughs> the unique history of the company and its unique offering, what is the, the metric or the number or what is it that you share? I think really once you explain that we could be marking all of the cotton in the United States and the hundreds of millions of pounds that is, or to be able to tag tablets in the pharma industry gets people really excited just for the magnitude of those two industries alone, let alone once you do it in one of those, can you take it and replicate it in a different industry? We always like to ask for an aha moment. And uh, by that, again, we're looking for sort of a moment in time where your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to either see an opportunity or a risk. Does anything come to mind? Um, I think there was one or two, but one I was thinking of was back, I mentioned briefly before, in November of 2013, we went through the process of doing a reverse split and simultaneously uplisting to NASDAQ and doing a, I guess you would call it a secondary public offering, which is really the first financing round 
the company in the public market that wasn't convertible stock or anything like that. Um, so that process took a lot of getting a lot of people here involved and also just all the compliance issues of now dealing with NASDAQ and the uplisting and getting all the shareholder approvals. So it really gave me insight into the company. And then it also was a moment where I realized that we needed to really increase in our documentation and our controls and our processes for doing certain things because now we're just going to be on you know, an exchange that had different rules and regulations and requirements. And it was also just an opportunity to potentially upgrade some of the reports and controls and things we currently had in place, you know, start implementing forecasting and those type of things as well. Thought Leader listeners, Beth Jensen promises to enter the mentoring round with us after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, we're going to enter our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and inform uh, future finance leaders as well as your finance leader peers. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? I really think it's just how fast everything's moving and the global economy or the global perspectives. I mean, now everything happens so fast. And in the last 10 to 15 years, the interactions you had with other countries and being able to do business in other parts of the world, now you could do it in such real time. And I think that's exciting. Like we are actually today opened a lab in India and just setting up that subsidiary and how we have employees there and testing will be done there. It's just interesting and exciting to see where else you could bring our technology. It's just, I think, easier and quicker to do now than it was in the past. What do you wish, what is that one piece of advice you wish someone had given you uh, the day you entered that CFO office? What is that one piece of advice that perhaps you didn't get that you, you wish you had got? Um, that's a tough one. I guess probably just letting you know how many different hats you actually are going to wear. <laughs> that some days you hardly deal with any finance and you're dealing with, I don't know, things you would never expect to deal with, HR issues, a leak in the kitchen, or <laughs> sometimes you feel like you're a, you know, a psychologist and all these different things. But in, on the flip side of that, I almost like that too, because every day is different. You don't come in every day with your 10 things on your list and that's all that you do. Sometimes you never get to that list. So I think it's a challenge and a benefit because it keeps it interesting. Is there a personal habit that you have that you believe has contributed to your success? I think really, and what a lot of people tell me here is that I just seem very calm and even keeled, that nothing really seems to fluster me or get me really stressed out. So I think that helps me just be able to keep a clear head and make decisions 
fairly quickly and adapt. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Sure. Um, I've had two books I thought of, but the first one is Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy. And it really is a book just about uh, better management and organization and time management skills. And I, it just for some reason always stuck with me because it's that little bit funny that it's always like you always want to, you should eat the biggest, ugliest frog first, meaning get that thing off your to-do list that's like the hardest thing to do first, where most people tend to want to play with the cute little frog or wipe off the first 10 easy things on their list. But if you tackle that one big problem first, it actually makes everything else fall into place easier. Okay, we're we're up to our final question. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? I think since we are still in the startup slash commercialization phase and expanding our business and going into other countries, the goal really is just to align and implement our forecasts for revenue and the potentials we have in revenue with our budgets and our business models and also the resources we have and make sure we have them aligned in the right verticals. Beth Jansen, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.